Are you an accredited investor looking for a new opportunity to generate passive income and build the retirement of your dreams? Then elevate your investment game with Viking Capital, where wealth meets wisdom. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting out, Viking Capital can help guide you towards financial freedom through passive real estate investing. With strong and transparent underwriting, Viking identifies low-risk opportunities with the goal of preserving investor capital and maximizing long-term growth potential. And their accessible and responsive investor relations team will help you understand how each investment will impact your unique financial goals. With $800 million in assets acquired, more than $230 million in equity raised, and more than 5,000 units under management, Viking Capital is your path to early retirement. To learn about Viking Capital's latest investment opportunity, which is available for you right now, visit go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best. That's go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best to get started today. Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, Promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Get started. Start with something small. I remember that very first deal two years ago. I was a little hesitant. I knew nothing about managing an apartment building and Brad wanted to try it. I'm like, let's take 111 unit apartment building and what's the worst that could happen? Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever show. I'm Ash Patel, and I'm with today's guest, Richard Simtab. Richard is joining us from West Bloomfield, Michigan. He is a syndicator, investor, and owner of multiple businesses. Richard's portfolio consists of being a GP on 401 units, and an LP on 12 different multifamily investments. I also had the pleasure of interviewing Brad Simtob, Richard's son, about a year ago, and he was probably the youngest syndicator I have ever interviewed. Richard, thanks for joining us, and how are you today? I am doing great. How are you doing? Very well, and I also saw Richard at the Best Ever Conference about four or five months ago. Pleasure seeing you again. Richard, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Sure. I'll give the quickest history. I've been an entrepreneur since a young age, got involved in my first franchise in college, doing 
house painting, like student painters, rolled into window tinting franchise in Canada. And then I started a chain in 93, renting books on cassette, my favorite way of learning, listening to motivational tapes at the time, which has now evolved to CDs and now Audible. I exited that business in 2001, and they decided to help other people franchise their businesses. Uh, I helped a chain called Wireless Toys. It was my focus for about four years. We grew it from eight to 200 locations, sold it to a private equity firm. I then bought into a soup and salad franchise called Zoop and helped them franchise from 18 to over 100 restaurants in multiple states. And then at the same time, while I was doing that, I started making investments in franchises. And I became a multi-unit owner of Goldfish Swim School, a multi-unit owner of Creative World Schools, and I bought an independent business with partners called Official Driving School, where we teach kids how to drive. And it was only recently, a couple of years ago, my son got into the real estate business, and now we've expanded into multifamily. Is your son the reason you got into real estate? A hundred percent. I've dabbled into commercial real estate. I own a few commercial properties where I have a building where we're the tenant in, and I have a few other tenants in the building with me, but doing multifamily real estate was something new to me. All right. There's so much to dive into here. You had a great run with a lot of different successful franchises. What kind of returns do those typically kick off? We do IRR in real estate, but let's do annualized cash on cash returns for the franchises. Well, that's where the numbers are very, very different. They take a lot more work and a lot more effort, and the returns are significantly higher. It's very typical in a franchise. Let's just take a Zoop franchise where someone could buy a $400,000 restaurant for $100,000 down and finance 75% with an SBA loan. They would have to work the restaurant, and they'll make $100,000 to $100,000 or more by operating the restaurant. So it's a part salary, part return on investment is how you have to look at franchising versus in a real estate investment, it's much more passive where you can get an IRR without having to do the day-to-day management and operations of the business. Richard, with the franchises, the way to win is by scaling, right? hundred percent. I started with one goldfish swim school, took us two years to make it successful enough that gave us the confidence to open our second. And then we had a formula, we had a team And it was easy to absorb more. And we built up to eight and we're building our ninth now after 10 years in the business. So it's not an overnight success, but the returns can be significant once you've crossed over that break-even line and then you start scaling up the revenue. Your top line really drops to the bottom line once you get over that break-even number. Richard, all those years with all those franchises and all of those rent checks that you wrote every month. Did you ever think, man, I would love to be on the other side of this and collect the rents, essentially being a passive owner versus having to work and scale your businesses? A hundred percent. Every one of those leases before I signed my eight goldfishes, I tried buying the building, the building I was in or a building in an area. And I had a development schedule I had to meet and I wasn't able to find a building that fit our needs to put a private swim school facility in that had enough parking and I was forced to rent. It was only my eighth deal that I convinced the landlord he had to sell me 35% of his 60,000 square foot shopping center if he wanted me to sign a 20-year lease. The previous landlords, I wasn't able to get that. 
and I wasn't able to find a building. So I always, always look to buy first and then rent second. And when you sign that lease, is it typically a 10-year lease? Well, for goldfish is we do 20-year leases because they're massive seven-figure investments in doing them with lots of options. So we control the property for 40 to 60 years. So we don't own it, but we've got a really pre-negotiated fixed rent with increases that are very tolerable for us that we know we can support over the long term so we don't have to move. What a win for the landlord because somebody's putting over a million dollars into the property and they're going to be there for 20 years. You've now added so much equity to that landlord. Have you ever tried to negotiate maybe uh, sharing the upside, any kind of creative solutions to get a piece of what you're giving this landlord? I wasn't able to get in my first few deals, but I got some rents that now they look at me and they go, what you pay is so ridiculously cheap because I started signing leases in 2010 and 2011 and those rents just don't exist anymore and I'm locked in. So they feel like they've done me a favor. But the last center I did where we bought 35%, the center was 60% vacant before we moved in. It's now 90% and the last 10% I'm working on filling and we've doubled the value of the center and we have been a draw to that 60,000 square foot center. And interestingly, this happened just now, the partners wanted to sell. And before putting it on the market, I had the ability to buy it from them. So we're closing in a couple of weeks and we're just buying them out. So we'll own hundred percent of the center now. That's a win. All right. So yeah. going forward, would you continue to scale the franchise side of the business or the real estate side? So it's a tough question because I don't want to put the time and effort into doing more franchises. But I do have a ninth swim school in construction and I have partners and I know what I love to do and I want to focus on that. But I have a really large management team now to manage it. And the Creative World Schools, we have three and they're ground up construction. And I have a leading managing partner in that that really drives the development and growth. And as long as my role is exactly what my unique abilities are, I'll continue to grow with them. But where I'm putting my time and effort now is with my son. It's really enjoyable and fun. We're really making a difference. He's passionate about helping low-income people that are homeless. And I share that same passion. And it's an amazing way to give back and do good and bring a fair return to our investors. Richard, you're a GP on 401 units. Are those joint ventures with your son or are those deals that you did on your own? Oh, they're 100%. He brought me aboard on the, he needed me to co-GP to sign the loan. Otherwise, he could have done it all on his own. He drove the deals. And I know the two of you fairly well from an in-depth conversation that we had. I'm assuming you didn't cut him any favors. You treated him as any other syndicator. Exactly the way any other syndicator. I think any other co-GP would take an equal share of the sponsor share if they're going to be signing on the loan and helping raise the funds. He manages, he gets paid for management, and his success is what drives his return. We have preferred returns that have to be paid. I obviously put capital in every deal, and he put the capital he had in every deal too. But he is treated as any other person would be treated. He doesn't get any special favors. What does an agreement look like on one of these deals? you bring all of the investors or does he bring some as well? 
all the investors are people that I know, but he has a relationship with some of my friends and they love talking to him. So he definitely does some of the calls. And then there's some people he doesn't know well, so I do those calls. He run the webinar together and answer all the questions together. What percentage of the GP do you get on these deals? So we typically kept 30% for us, 70%, right out of the, the best ever apartment book I read two years ago. We've done a couple where they were a little bit more complicated deals and they were smaller deals. So we did 60-40 split, 60 for the investors and 40 for us. But on the larger deals, a 70-30 seems to be very fair. And on the 30, it's 15 for him and 15 for me. What kind of returns do the investors get, the LPs? We offer an 8% minimum quarterly paid preferred return. And the way we've been lucky the last two years, the properties have performed exceptionally well in value. We already had our first refinance just completed last week. And we have many opportunities. We could refinance in the next year. It'll just depend on timing and interest rates and where we're at. But we haven't done 100% completion of any project except for that one that we refight. So we still have a lot of units to renovate. All right, Richard. So, you know, I am a non-residential investor. I do everything beyond multifamily. You've seen all different sides of different real estate assets, and you've seen how passive owning strip centers can be. Why focus on multifamily now when returns are much lower there's a lot more money chasing those deals. Cap rates are coming down. Why not try to find more strip centers? If we were trying to buy A-class, four cap rate apartment buildings, I would just be buying shopping centers at a six and seven cap. Much better deals. And I don't understand people that do that. But I guess there's a lot of money out there in the market and they find it as a safe haven and with appreciation. What we're buying is typically a six cap on historical numbers, where we proformatted at an eight cap based on expense reductions and proper management and rent increases. And then with the possibility of the renovations and the ever escalating rents, we're going to see double digit, close to 20% returns on all our investments. And I don't see that in my retail investments. It's very hard to get to a 20% IRR in anything retail. If you were to do it over again, would you have gone the franchise route or knowing the syndication model, would you have started out in real estate? It was really, really hard to start in real estate. There was a point at that 2001 point of my life when I left the audiobook business called Talking Book World and I was looking for my next career. I did get my real estate license and I did spend some time looking into it. I remember going to visit apartments. I didn't understand the business. There wasn't all the podcasts and education you have today. And I just couldn't get to that first point to get started. And there was nobody mentoring me or helping me. And then what I knew, because I had been in franchising, I could make money right away awarding franchises to people and helping people grow their business through franchising. So it was immediate cash flow, immediate income. And I knew in real estate, there wasn't going to be a six-figure paycheck coming anytime soon. So I had to do what I did at that point and knowing what I know. What I wish I knew was I would have started investing it as an LP instead of putting money in my 401k or in the stock market. And I think I would have seen much better longer returns and better returns over the last 20 years if I had done that. And then I would have slowly started raising money for other people and got into deals 
And I would have probably got a 10 year head start over where I am today. Yeah. And it was a different time and it was harder to get established in real estate today. However, those barriers are for the most part gone. So would your advice today be to a young person, maybe a year or two out of college, start with franchises or real estate? If they have no capital and they don't have a mentor in real estate to take them, like to sign these seven figure loans, it's a great way to get started in a franchise. It's better than starting a new business, start an established business and make money because you could turn a $50,000 investment into a $250,000 purchase of a business with the SBA loan program with just decent credit, but no collateral. That's what's amazing about the SBA program. And that $50,000 investment could be a $200,000 a year paycheck for you. You could start socking away money, start buying a home or two, a 510 unit apartment building, and then you could scale into the real estate business. But I know it's helped me and getting all the loans we've done and say over $20 million worth of loans is that my balance sheet looks really healthy and I have weekly cash flow from all my businesses. So I have a very solid foundation that to the banks, it's a very low risk investment because I can make the payments. And Richard, you are obviously an expert in scaling. How have you brought your knowledge of scaling businesses to real estate? I run all my businesses on the EOS process, the Entrepreneur Operating System, founded by Gino Wickman. And that system has been implemented in SIPTOP management right from the beginning. We have core values. We have a big, hairy, audacious goal. We have a three-year picture, our uniques, and we have a one-year target, and we have 90-day rocks. And we have a weekly level 10 meeting to keep our management team together. Once a quarter, you also do what's called a state of the company meeting where you share the vision, what you're working on, what are the highest priority projects. And it gets the construction workers, the property managers, really excited to quarterly hear that this company has a plan, a vision, and knows where it's going. We're not all scatterbrained all over the place. And it's so clear. It's easy when you come to work. We have scorecards for every department so you can measure if you're doing well or doing poorly. A lot of people work for businesses. They have no idea if they're winning or losing, so they don't keep score. Can we dive into some of those specifics? Scorecards, for example, what scorecard would a construction manager have? So a construction manager has a couple things on their scorecard. The number of units renovated this week and the number of units that are in what you call it in progress that aren't completed and the number done. So we have a goal of 144 renovations this year. We're at 88 completed so far. So we're on track to our 144 completed renovated units this year. Then we have a labor scorecard, which is the total cost of labor divided by the total cost of unit renovated. So we know our labor per unit and the total cost of construction materials. So those numbers are looked at every single week and they go up and down based on their performance each week on spending and on management and on production. Do you have a scorecard? My personal scorecard is on all parts of the business, but every time there's a fundraising, I have a chart and it's just going through. And if it's a $2 million raise, every day my scorecard is getting to that $2 million. Right now, our scorecard was getting the product under contract. Happy to say it was about two months of not signing any PAs. It's been a really weird market. I got outbid on every single offer I made. And most of those people backed out. And now we've had a lot of deals come back to us. And we just put a 281 unit, our largest deal, $14.5 million under contract. 
We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. When it comes to scaling your real estate business, is lack of capital holding you back? Raising private capital on demand can be a major challenge, but you can get the knowledge and tools you need to succeed when you attend Dana Cornell's four-week Raise Capital Masterclass Live. After starting out with no capital or relationships, Dana has raised over $1 billion twice in the past 20 years, and he has made it his mission to share the best of what he's learned with business owners and investors like you. You can learn more at danacornell.com forward slash best ever. Dana's Raise Capital Masterclass Live allows you to immediately unlock and raise capital on demand, drastically increasing your business's growth. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, go to danacornell.com forward slash best ever to enroll today. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at passiveinvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. Passiveinvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. How do you find deals? It's all relationships with brokers and with landlords. Brad did a letter writing campaign. And through that campaign, we found two people that not through a broker, but called Brad directly and made a deal. We had to save the broker and the other ones, and I'm learning this more and more, the brokers don't list most of their deals. I think 70% of deals done by brokers are done from a broker who knows a client himself and he knows a client that's looking for that product to buy and they put them together and they save that whole process of fielding all the questions, doing all the tours, doing all that work. And at the end of the day, they know the guy who's going to buy it, the guy that knows the property the best. Here's another off the wall question. So your son, I'm guessing now is about 21 because I bought him a beer when he was 20. Is that right? Is he 21 now? <laughs> yeah, you bought him a beer two weeks before his birthday. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what dynamic issues do you guys have working with your son? Well, I've accepted the role as I am coaching and helping him. He is not my employee and I'm not telling him what to do every day. Because I don't want to have to convince him to get out of bed. I don't want to convince him to go and work harder. He has taken the role where he is leading this. He's responsible for this. And I'm his coach. Now he comes to me for help. And I'm stuck on this. I need help with that. And I will help on anything and anything he asks for. But I really have made this his thing. And I'm here to help and coach him along. There's times he says, Dad, stay out of this. I got this. Don't worry about it. And there's a lot of that because I'll sometimes overreach as a father or as an investor, as a partner, and he'll push back. And I understand my role. So on the org chart, is that your role, mentor, coach? Or yes, are you so CEO, I, COO? There was one where I was visionary, which I'm sort of a visionary, but right now the new one, I'm just a controller. I oversee okay. the money. We have accounting manager, but I'm making sure that every number balance isn't perfect. All right. So speak only when you're spoken to. Yeah. 
Awesome. You guys are in two markets right now in Michigan, right? Correct. Kalamazoo, Michigan and Lansing, Michigan. And you've got this vast history of scaling. Why are you still in two markets? Well, we've been really working hard on getting into Grand Rapids. It was a goal this year. It's written. I still think it's a possibility that by the end of the year, we'll have one property of at least 80 units in Grand Rapids. That's our written plan. And we started making offers in Indiana and we got outbid there. But there's close to Kalamazoo, like an hour away with similar product. The prefabricated single floor homes that are sent up as apartments. We're good at that. We understand that product. And the broker came to us and says, we're selling something that's exactly like the property you own in Kalamazoo or an hour away. Would you look at it? Brad did a full investigation. We got outbid by a little bit, probably by a million, but I think it might come back. I don't know if they'll close. What's the key to breaking into new markets? Well, first it's relationships. If I was going to go to Indiana at that time, we got pulled, but we are looking at going into Chicago and we're looking at going to Indianapolis. So we're just starting to talk to people and create relationships there and ask, who do we know here that knows someone there? Because it's us, that warm call and that warm lead makes all the difference in the world. Richard, with all of your years of experience, what's a deal you lost money on and what was a lesson learned? Yeah, I lost a lot of money on a lot of deals. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell the biggest amount of money I lost was in 2009, after we sold wireless toys. I decided I wanted a break from franchise growing and I wanted an online business. I saw everyone making money online and I, I came up with a concept that I was going to have a lead generation website for franchise leads, but I was going to charge differently by success instead of by lead. And it was called Franchises for Sale. I bought the domain. I built an amazing site and I spent a year and a half and over a quarter million dollars building this business and it ultimately failed. I did create some amazing relationships through that business and franchising. I got into business with my brother and we got the Canadian rights to a restoration company that he built and has sold. And I only got that relationship because I had that business, but it wasn't an income from that business, but relationships were created. So that was the biggest loss. Did it fail because it was ahead of its time or you were trying to solve a problem that didn't need to be solved? I tried to solve a problem that it's very, very hard to solve because people would rather pay only when they sell a franchise to pay a fee. We pay charge $10,000 versus $50 for every lead. But it's almost an impossible problem to solve. And the cost to do it right would have cost me millions of dollars. I realized building a website is only 50 grand. You need $5 million to convince people to show up at it. <laughs> And then when you scaled, there's a lot of people involved. Were there a lot of partners involved? In that particular business? No, no, no just in general throughout your career. Did you have partners yes. over time? So I'm one of those guys, and I know it's the opposite than other people I know. I've not owned any businesses without a business partner. Even my goldfishes, I have a partner, my driving school, my creative world. And it's enabled me to have a lifestyle that I enjoy. And I'm not greedy. I don't need 100% of the profits. If I have 25 to 50%, I'm a happy camper. So I'd rather own multiple businesses with less share than have 100% of one business and it's all I got. And I've learned that over the years too. And I've heard if you want to go far, go together. And I've had some tough deals with partners, had a partner that wanted to buy a building with me. It was an office building that was kind of half built. 
ran out of money, vacant for five years. And he was a builder. So he wanted to go in on this with me. He sought me out and we became partners. And as soon as we signed, turns out he doesn't work. He just outsources everything. Well, that's not how value add commercial works, right? We're the boots on the ground. And I've learned some hard lessons with partners over the years. What are some good lessons that you've learned on partners or mistakes that you've made? Well, I brought in partners in that business called Talking Book World in 1997. And I was enthralled. They brought in millions of dollars to the table. It didn't go to my pocket. It went into the business to scale the business that had 40 locations. And we were going to scale it to 100. And I did very little research on them. And I didn't work with them a lot. Similar to you getting into a partner and you find out after you've signed the papers, he's lazy. And I've learned that you have to work with people for a long time and find a way to pay them or get paid on commission, something before you become a partner. It's very hard to unwind an ownership stake. So my partner, Mike Goldfish is, I worked with him at Wireless Toys. He was a VP of operations. We worked together for 10 years. I knew what he was good at and I knew what he was bad at and he knew the same about me. So we had a great partnership going into Goldfish because we knew our strengths and our weaknesses, which we both have. And even when I got into wireless toys, I worked as a consultant for two years on straight commission. And then they wanted me as a partner in the company and they offered me a percentage of the company to come and join full time. But they knew what they were getting right up front, the good and the bad. And it was a great partnership. Yeah, no different than a marriage. And your partnership agreement or your operating agreement is no different than a prenup. So for the best ever listeners out there, don't hand out partnerships lightly. Really work with the person like Richard's saying, test drive that relationship before you give away half of your company. Because again, like you said, it's very hard to unwind. Let's take a hypothetical example. I know a lot of younger best ever listeners will want to get into real estate and they'll get a buddy or two and they become partners and then start this company. And then more often than not, I've seen where the partnership doesn't work out because again, they have differences of opinions. One person doesn't work as hard. How would you suggest younger people that are getting into real estate structure their company or partnership? It's a great question. My suggestion would be you do a partnership on a particular property only, not on a company. And on that property, you define the capital, just like the sponsor area and the investor part. So if they were to find a million dollar building and they knew they had to raise $300,000, they put out a fundraising for 300 and you could decide by who raises more money, gets a different percentage of the 30%. And then whoever does the management gets paid for the management. If they say, we're all going to manage, we're all going to raise money, you should know upfront, it's not going to happen. <laughs> so why don't you just call a spade a spade and say, listen, you're the fundraiser and I'm the property manager. When you're the accounting and bookkeeper, let's get paid for our roles. And we can still share in the sponsor 30%. So the property manager gets paid his four or 5%. And the person that does the accounting gets paid his 500 a month to do all the bookkeeping for this property. And the guy that's going to get fundraising is going to get a one-time fee from the acquisition fee for raising those funds. They're not going to all be equal. It's hard to pay everyone equally and do the exact amount of work. It's impossible. We'll never work the exact same. 
if me and you were in the same deal. One's going to work different hours or a different effort than the other. I love that. Great advice. And very quickly, you'll find out who's a rock star and who doesn't produce. So yeah, best ever listeners, re-listen to what Richard just said. That's very, very important. It can help you avoid a lot of heartache. Richard, what mistake do you see a lot of other real estate syndicators make? I definitely see over-promising. And right now, I don't want to say they've under-delivered because so far they've done okay. But I hate over-promising. It's the scariest thing. I get deals. I invest as an LP, as a partner too. And that's why I have to see the underwriting to a deal because I want to see how unrealistic. I just had a deal that the fundraiser was really excited about. And I went in and it was all based to get a 20% return on a five exit cap rate in five years from now. I'm like, well, if I change that cap rate to seven, all of a sudden my return goes to 4% IRR. And there was only cash flow because it was interest only. And the minute it wasn't interest only, there was no cash flow in the deal. I'm like, you have no ability to rebound or make up for a mistake here. It's perfection only. So over-promising to investors is probably the biggest mistake. Yeah. I interviewed somebody recently who said, we spend more time researching appliances than we do researching the syndications that we put six figures into. I've done it. (laughs) I've written checks and not asked a lot of questions. Well, someone tells you, oh, it's a good deal. Go put your money. And I did it a couple of times. I lost a few $50,000 investments (laughs) and I'm mad about those. And I realized it's my fault. It wasn't theirs. It's my fault. I should have asked more questions. I should dig in. I'll never, ever blame the person that introduced me to something for a loss when I was the one who made the decision. Yeah. And it only takes a couple of times to learn that lesson and then you figure it out. You said something earlier in this conversation that I've never heard before. And it struck out to me. You said we offer a minimum of 8% PREF. Is that a variable return? I love how you phrase that. We'll offer you a minimum of 8%. Could it be higher? Yeah, because the PREF is 8. Okay. And then you're going to make more than 8 because we're going to make more on the property. So the PREF is 8. After 8, it's a 70-30 split. Got but it. They okay. can, just because we went under budget on construction or we had some great events where we were able to pay back some of the initial capital already without even a refi. So they've been able to make more money back. Okay. So you don't wait until the end. If you have increased operating profits, you'll deploy that to investors. Yeah. If I don't have a better use for it in the business, I'm not going to sit on a hundred grand seeing an account if I only need 30. So I'll put back the 70 to the investors because that's a better use of the funds and let them invest it. And does that reduce the amount of capital they're getting a prep on? It does. Yeah. It does. Awesome. Richard, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? (laughs) I'd have to say get started. Start with something small. I remember that very first deal two years ago. I was a little hesitant. I knew nothing about managing an apartment building and Brad wanted to try it. I'm like, let's take 111 unit apartment building and what's the worst that could happen? And we took a risk and I could have put up all the money, but I want him to learn how to syndicate. So I said, why don't you call these three friends of mine and pitch him? He made a pitch deck. He made his pro formas and he pitched all three friends for $12,500. And they all said yes. And they all put money in. So I got to be 50-50 partners on the equity side with three of my friends. But now my son wasn't just responsible to me. He was responsible to other people too. 
and it made him write investor updates every quarter and understand, but just get started with something small. Richard, did you have a mentor in your franchise business? I don't have a particular mentor that I met with, but I consider Brian Tracy, who wrote many, many books. He's a published author and audiobook. I've been listening to him since I was 17 years old, and I consider him my remote mentor. I've listened to everything he's ever spoken. I've learned incredible amount about business and life from Brian Tracy. So he's that mentor to me. How important is having a mentor in real estate? I think it's very important. I have several friends in real estate that I go to. So it's funny, I don't call them a mentor, but they own property. One sold his portfolio of mobile home parks. Another one owns apartments in Detroit. And I'm able to call on them and ask questions about how do they deal with this? What property management software they use? And ask questions like that. And that's been really helpful. And I'll tell you, syndicating was really, really new to me. And I didn't know anyone around me that was doing it. And the book that Joe Fairless wrote was a huge jumpstart for me to understand all the steps of the research, finding, researching, and raising funds and structuring a deal that was really valuable to me too. Yeah, that is the Bible of syndication. It's like a 400 yeah. something page book. By I, the I, way, I listened to it on Audible and it was an amazing listen. <laughs> did he record it? It was not his voice. I read the Cliff Notes version of that book. <laughs> oh, I listened to every word. And I'm telling you, he had so much good stuff in it. For someone getting started, start with that to learn how All to syndicate. All right, Joe, I'll listen to the book. I'm probably not going to read the 400 pages. All right, Richard, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Yes, I don't remember the questions. All right, then we'll just hit you fresh. Richard, what's the best ever book you recently read? I am listening to Sapiens right now. It is about the human race and how we develop and evolve and how we are where we are today. Yeah, my wife really loved that book. Richard, what's the best ever way you like to give back? I give back in two ways. I give back my time to several charities. The main one is a food pantry in Michigan that I've been part of for 25 years, a president of, and then I have a whole giving plan that I give donations to a certain number of charities every year that have a big impact in the community. And Richard, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? Well, my email is easy. It's my first name at my last name.com, Richard at Simtob.com. You could just go to the website, simtob.com. There's a place to contact us if you want to be on our mailing list or learn anything about things we're doing in the future. Richard, thank you for taking time out of your day today and sharing what I think is two lifetimes of success and mistakes with all of us and the best ever listeners. You've given us a lot of great advice on scaling some of the failures, some of the successes. So thank you again for your time. Thank you, Ash. You were wonderful today. Best ever listeners, thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share the podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day.